All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You got Michael's one and two, Vance and Miles. Welcome, guys. Thank you. What's up? Um, Miles is turning into a, a really solid rotation player here. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I said I was six man, but, you know, I'm kind of I'm, I'm working my way into the rotation here. Might be uh, an yeah. upgrade here. Might be an upgrade. Yeah. Where's Yano? Just vacation or what's good? No, Blockwork had a charity wiffle ball game today. So Yano's, <laughs> Yano's holding down the fort at the wiffle ball. How come you didn't get the invite, Mike? Bro, I can't. These old bones don't play wiffle ball anymore, man. <laughs> they don't. Just imagine like a clipboard and like type. <laughs> Like a third uh, beach coast, like smacking yeah, people on the ass yeah. as they run by. Like we, we gotta call the bullpen. This isn't working out. Who's <laughs> more athletic, you or Yano? It's a low bar. Yeah. <laughs> I cross both of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yano, Yano would say Yano would say he is, but um, of course, no, I think the record would disagree. You're the bigger <laughs> man. Oh, yeah, exactly. I take the high road. Exactly. Um, all right, let's let's talk. We got a whole bunch of uh, different things to talk about this week. Why don't we just jump right in here and talk about Uniswap V4? So V4 is kind of the long-awaited upgrade or new contract that's going to be deployed. Um, and Hayden Hayden gave us a preview of it this week. The caveat is that you know in past times when there's been a new version of Uniswap launch, uh, sort of there's a preview, but then at that point the code base is already out there and it's been audited and is sort of finalized. Hayden was very careful to say this is. You know, a very preliminary version. We want to be able to take on feedback from the community, um, and it's going to be a little while before V4 V4 actually gets deployed. But there were basically a whole bunch of new uh, features that V4 introduced. Um, the main one that sort of got a lot of attention is the introduction of hooks. Hooks are sort of these uh, customizable contracts that enable highly customizable pools and new functionality. So a list of things that are now possible with hooks: dynamic fees, limit orders, TWAP orders. MEV internalization, uh, all sorts of different things. Uh, pools are moving away. We're moving away from the factory model on V3 to a singleton contract. So basically, all these pools are going to be on one large contract, and that's going to save on gas costs, especially for, I think, the deployment of new pools. Hayden said it could be as much as 99%, uh, you know, some enormous amount cheaper. Um, and that's, I mean, that's largely it. I mean, I'd be very curious, like, what do you guys think broadly about before? I, I can jump in here. Um, I guess my my takeaways, I had a couple of big ones. Um, so first, I think on just the framing of this upgrade and how it differs from the other ones um, that you mentioned, I think, you know, Uniswap has done a really good job over its entire lifetime of aligning itself, aligning its brand with that of Ethereum. Um, so when people think of Ethereum, they also think of Uniswap. Um, and one thing Ethereum does, obviously, is is you know they build in public. They put out ideas on a forum. There's a period of discussion, um, and then the upgrade happens. And of course, it's not you know token weighted voting to make that upgrade happen. Um, it's you know social consensus. I think that's kind of the direction, or at least the the sort of message that Uniswap wants to put out with this, um, in terms of you know building in public and not just flipping the switch. So I guess that's number one. Um, number two is just the the capabilities that hooks enable. Um, you know, I think this makes the decks, you know, in general, way more programmable. Um, and a lot of the things that we've seen, you know, and 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 I've been close to in Cosmos is because you know the you can build a lot of these capabilities into the chain. So something to say, you know, logic after every swap that, you know, is um, 
potentially for like MEV purposes or, or checking an Oracle. Um, and I think, you know, they're, they found ways to build this into the smart contract level, um, which is really, uh, really smart. And I'd say the last takeaway I had is just the general strategy. Um, you know, it's been, Uniswap has been kind of in between both a user-facing trading tool and sort of a, a platform for other apps to build upon. Um, and I think this takes them, you know, one step closer in that that latter direction. Um, the way that, you know, Balancer has always tried to frame itself, right? It wants a network of independent dependents building on top. And I think, you know, the goal of this is so that the next, you know, team that comes along thinking that they can build a better DEX, uh, you know, instead of starting from scratch and building a competitor, they'll just take the ideas and the tooling that's been, you know, put out there by Uniswap, tap into the liquidity, tap into the existing brand and user base. Um, and hopefully, you know, if, if Uniswap is successful in their eyes, they'll have, you know, all these would-be competitors now building on top of the Uniswap protocol. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that that's, it's a really strong strategy. They can retain, you know, flexibility to build user-facing tools with the wallet and the mobile app um, mm -hmm. and kind of let the protocol be a little bit more, you know, I would say unbiased um, or a little bit more open for development. Um, and so, yeah, I, I actually, I like it. I think we were talking about it a little bit earlier. Like I don't see this as a move towards a uni chain, but you know, you could take a version of Uniswap and, you know, build all these hooks, you know, fancy bells and whistles in and then launch a uni chain. But I think this kind of allows them to get a lot of those benefits without having to make such a dramatic move. Um, and really it helps them accelerate development because all these other teams, you know, you kind of outsource it to the market to really experiment with these things. Can you explain what a hook is? Yeah, I think a hook is basically after every single transaction, you have some sort of if-then logic. Um, and so, you know, with with or Osmosis uses hooks for you know a, a tool that or a module that helps it internalize MEV. And this hook basically after every single swap checks for possible arbitrage uh, opportunities that were created by it. So, which you know potential imbalances in the pool, and then at the end of the block on Osmosis. It says, okay, we checked for ARBs after every single swap. Here's the one that we think is, you know, most profitable. We're going to flash mint, you know, ourselves Osmo, capture the ARB, and then pay pay back the flash loan. Um, and so you could do something like that with using hooks on Ethereum um, or with Uniswap. But that's the general idea is you're basically building a way to add logic, in, you know, after every swap or in between, you know, a block. One one way of <clears throat> at least I kind of read through it and thought about it was in in the nice case a limit order is probably a good example of how a hook would work. Some price on some AMM gets below some threshold or above some threshold, and there's some trigger with a hook that says, "Okay, sell or buy that asset or swap that asset." Um, in the bad case, it enables a, an entire attack vector that doesn't exist in Uniswap currently. And I generally agree with you know everything you said, Miles, and I think that this is a great step forward. I agree it's also moving more in the direction of the Ethereum open source development process, which is really positive development for a protocol, uh, in my opinion. I, I do think that historically what we've seen with Uniswap is it's really simple to use. It's an AMM. It's a constant function. You know what the price is going to be, and you swap. And that's V1, V2. 
um, V3 added a, a pretty significant amount of complexity, more so on the liquidity provider side. It, it added a lot of user uh, benefits with different price points, different, um, different functions. Um, there was just a, a, a net benefit to users, I would say, at frankly kind of a cost of LPs because it, it didn't make it you know, as easy to LP as it was on the first couple of versions. Um, <clears throat> and I see this as a further level of um, complexity that is added to an otherwise thought of very simple protocol and very easy to use interface that if used in a malicious way and, and frankly for unknown users could be troublesome, could be, you know, potentially disastrous if, you know, hooks are, like, I, I definitely agree that you can have sort of an MAV bot that stands for opportunities and kind of arbs them away. It could also be the opposite, where it's a, a malicious uh, MAV uh, attacker um, using hooks where you've got these different vaults of uh, with different hooks in them. Um, I, I'm just kind of thinking here out loud, but you know, it, it will be very hard to distinguish between for an end user what is just like a normal pool without any real complications versus something that could have a bunch of hooks in there that you just don't even know about and get steamrolled or run over without really inspecting the code or inspecting what's happening behind the scenes. Like, it's going to be interesting to see what the user experience looks like from a user perspective to see how they want to transact in what pools. Um, because I think that that's going to be a pretty huge divergence from just what most people think of Uniswap today. Will, yeah. will the meme coins still launch on V2? Probably. Probably. <laughs> that's, that's another sort of interesting. So I want to dive in, Michael, to what you just said there as well. But you know, in hearing Hayden talk about this, I thought one thing that he emphasized that at least I found interesting, and you can see it in the construction of the Singleton contract, is there's a lot of focus from the Uniswap team in terms of gas optimization. And that's definitely well and good. But what it implies to me is that Uniswap, for the, at least the foreseeable future, sees the majority of trading happening on ETH mainchain. And, you know, a lot of the narrative that you hear is that a lot of activity is going to move up to layer two. So there's a little bit of a divergence there, and maybe we can speculate. Do you agree with that that sort of observation? And maybe we can speculate a little bit as to why that is. I think it, I think it will continue to exist on main chain. Um, all the crypto native stuff, the hottest money right now is ETH that recently staked and is now LSTs. And we've talked about this before, but like they're yeah. the most willing to try shit and trade stuff, and they're always going to be on ETH mainnet. Like bridging that stuff doesn't really make sense functionally. Um. Honestly, I've had a few conversations this week that A, we're like, you know, these are companies pitching us or just like talking to different institutional investors. There's a lot of real world assets that are coming to ETH mainnet that are like, they're, they're never going to launch on Polygon. You know, they're never going to launch on the L2s. Like they don't care about the gas fees. They want the, you know, nuclear grade security of ETH L1. And like, it really is like a, a pretty optimistic path forward for ETH is just like, these are the people who are willing to pay the highest gas fees and, and put the most sensitive assets on chain. And like, at least that's what I think is like the hopeful future of Ethereum is it does become this like settlement layer value layer um, where all of these real world assets come and, and just hang and just never leave. So I do think that the, you know, the foreseeable future will, will be ETH mainnet. And on the kind of more nihilistic side of the house, it's like Pepe's and all of those things, those are on ETH mainnet for a reason. And it's because there's, you know, 60, 70 billion of stable coins on ETH. And until that changes, I, I don't see trading moving anywhere. I was going to say, <clears throat> I mean, the, the evidence is there. 
you know, it, it, these layer two solutions have been out for at this point years or, you know, close to a year in, in the same user experience and capabilities that they have today generally, but why haven't the assets moved over? Why haven't they bridged? Why hasn't there been major change or major shift in moving to L2s if it is that much less expensive and, and people want to trade there? You know, it just hasn't happened yet. So what's to suggest, what would, what would be the catalyst to force that to move over? In, in validation, this thesis would look like the first major meme coin launching on an L2. That would make me think differently. Um, I would also say real world assets launching on a layer two, like massive sizable assets launching on a layer two. If yep. you assume that you're going to have both of the assets originate from L1, I am. I agree that there's a ton of assets that are real world in, in orientation that are coming online in the next couple of years. Where those originate from, it's not you know something that has a, a security model that's not Ethereum. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, we've we've talked about this a little bit before, but this concept of like premium block space and that being you know kind of a, a huge tailwind for Ethereum longer term. Um, I think I agree with you. I. I don't know. I don't feel as strongly about where the meme coins launch, but I do see, I can see a future where minting new assets, um, you know, that, you, that are high value, right? Like RWAs, as we're talking about, um, you know, never leaves ETH L1. Huge, you know, large, large transfers of assets between institutions never leaves L1 because it's going to pay up for those gas prices. Um, but I could totally see, you know, Let's see if base is super successful and ends up having as many daily active users as as you know Ethereum L1 itself. If I was a meme, if I was launching a meme coin, you know that's that's kind of where I would probably want to go. I'd just follow the users. Um, but you know, advance to your point, what is the catalyst to get the users there? Um, I'm I'm of two minds on base. Like the first one is that you know it's Coinbase branded. It is connected to the Coinbase wallet, obviously, you know, they're going to have users, whatever. Other thought processes, like once upon a time, everyone was really bullish on Coinbase NFT or, or that <laughs> NFT marketplace. And, you know, like it, it really, it, it kind of is like this binary thing. It's either going to be huge or it's going to be nothing. Um, and what's the activation energy? What is the catalyst that drives people over to Coinbase base? Um, I'm not exactly sure. Honestly, I couldn't come up <laughs> something i think it could play. be users just i mean on. we've because we've talked so i my original sort of concern about base was that it, it might have the perception of something like a corporate chain which has been pretty negative in the history of crypto but i've done a little bit of poking around and just asked people like do you hear about people being excited about base and maybe it's because the industry wants to rally around coinbase right now for i think pretty good reasons but the other thing that Coinbase has that's very attractive is developers want to build things that people are going to use. And that is one thing that Coinbase really has. They've got users. And what I was going to say is users, okay, I didn't understand that perspective. Just anything that's real-world asset that is going to come from a traditional financial institution needs to have the safeguards and, and controls in place. If you assume that that's out-of-the-box fun functionality for base, then it could just be the supply of assets. That, that maybe is the only place where they can mint these things. That, that obviously is counter to what we were just talking about, but I, I could see that being an a invalidation of the theory. Do, do you think it's maybe, I'll just throw like an idea that I had out at least, and you guys can tell me that I'm wrong, but I think one of the reasons why some of the big DeFi apps that sort of made their name on ETH main chain haven't like really successfully deployed to some of the layer twos or haven't really tried to invest there is that they're not 100% confident yet in the security. And there are a lot of big questions about like, 
what is the you know sequencer set going to look like and uh you know how solid are these things really and there's a question of if it's issued on eth main chain and then bridged or if it's natively issued on the layer two and what is protected from the fork choice rule so i think if if it were me and i was putting myself in uniswap shoes you got a golden goose. You have, you know, an enormous amount of market share on the place where all the liquidity and activity is, even though, you know, it's the explicit scaling solution for ETH to move users up to layer twos. I probably wouldn't take that risk right now, to be honest. I mean, they're on Polygon now and Polygon's getting reorged, you know, pretty much daily <laughs> at right. this point. Like, you know, yeah. I don't think I don't think yeah, really it's there that much. Um, it's it's small though. It's a relatively small amount of volume that happens up there. Just a small reorg. Just uh, just you know, <laughs> normal force business. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I, I think I'm I, I would probably take the under on base. You know, mm-hmm. like if you build it, will they actually come? Why why would they go there? Um, there's no liquid staking. There's no big borrow lend markets. You have to bridge assets. Like it's an uphill battle. I think one of the reasons why, or like just to break down your argument, it's like, you know, is the chain itself secure enough? Like, I, I think we have good evidence to suggest that like, maybe that's not the most important thing to like a uni V3 deployment. I think the other case of like, you know, what happens if there's like a bridge that rugs, that's still like the through line of, of most L2 dynamics to me. It's like, we still have yeah. not come up with yeah. a canonical bridge. And those things are, you know, pretty sketchy. Like, you know, if you think about a bridge, what they're doing is they're, taking your assets in and they're minting you assets that kind of look or feel a little bit like them on the other side. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's not so, exactly straightforward. I, I was going to say, Mike, out of the things you just listed, I'd say the number one holdback that I, I've you know thought about or seen and, and felt myself is, is lack of native minting. Once you have the ability to natively mint assets on a chain and, and then it becomes a question of composability and what other available applications and functionality is available in that ecosystem. Liquidity is is one of those components. But I do think that it really does come down to native minting of assets. Where do those assets natively exist versus the bridge? I think the bridge is probably the most crucial component and, and probably the most fearful for anybody who's who's needing to use a layer two. Agreed. Just speaking of, speaking of uh, like where these assets are minted in real world assets, like we saw a few pitches over the past few weeks that are like wildly ambitious versions of real world assets, like not just like minting them on chain, but like building out real economies and starting to like bootstrap really like Ethereum as like the back end of like traditional financial infrastructure rails. And these pitches were not just like three dudes in a garage. It was like, you know, you know, very experienced, you know, high level former, you know, bank employees backed by global institutions in the trading and finance world with like very coherent plans to like both put these assets on chain and then, you know, increase their circulation and volume and, and really use it as a, a normal course of business practice. And like, we, we get obviously like inspired by DeFi and by games and like, it just feels like we're really starting to see those like very ambitious true believers that are like backed by like you guys just uh, put out an article that Franklin Templeton is going to use a lot of ETH infrastructure to do these real world asset things. Like, yeah, it does feel like that's like the panacea that's starting to present itself. And I read a few tweets this week about like, you know, how 2023 is much worse than 2019. I just like could not disagree with that more. I could not disagree with that more either. Like, absolutely. I remember not. there was a point in 2019 where Michael and I were sitting at that uh, that house we used to live in in Culver City and we were sitting by the pool and we were trying to come up with a use case for crypto. We literally couldn't think of anything. 
And I, I was just like, other, other than sports collectibles. Yeah, yeah. other than sports collectibles, which happened to be like the company we were building at the time. But it was just like, you know, fuck, is this ever going to work or am I just wasting my time? And people were like, oh, like the original values of crypto were like much more present in 2019 than they are in 2023. Like that is entire. The thing that I was reading in 2019 to like get me through the day was like Willy Woo's price predictions of like, you know, we're doing like on-chain TA. Yeah, I was subscribed to that Substack. That's oh, yeah. what was getting me through. Like at least this bear market, like there's real apps, there's real like use cases, there's real institutions that care about this stuff. BlackRock just announced that they are filing for an ETF for Bitcoin. Like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like the current generation is so soft. <laughs> I bet no no old generation has ever said that about the new generation. I was about to say. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm pretty sure your dad told us the exact same thing, Vance. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. That was, that was the other thing. Like when we started Framework, I was like, "Hey, Dad, I'm starting a, a crypto hedge fund." He was like, "Absolutely fucking not. You're going to business school, <laughs> dude." All right, at least there was you had- no like chase your dreams. It was like this industry is a scam. Did you see all of those ICOs? What happened there, Vance? At least you had a fund in the title there. For the first like two years of Blockworks, all we got to say was like, yeah, we like host some crypto meetups. Yeah, yeah. that was like the first two years. How many Hell people yeah. do you think thought that was a great idea? Like, we went block. to that OG uh, Chicago Blockworks conference. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. coin alts. Yeah. Did I, did I think I would see Blockworks again? I didn't know at that point. I don't, I didn't think <laughs> But so. you guys have come a long way. <laughs> Man, I forgot yeah. about that. I, you know, the thing that was painful in 2019, it was like, is any of this stuff going to be real? It just, everything was very theoretical. And, you know, when prices are tanking and everything's theoretical, it's very hard to, you know, it, at least this stuff is like, all right, are the values right? Are we going to figure out a business model? Is the SEC going to outlaw this stuff? Those are much better arguments than does this even make sense? They're much less existential. And they so, did. Jay Clayton was like, remember when Jay Clayton was like, all of these are securities? And everyone was like, all right, pack it up. Like, we're just going to do Bitcoin. Like, Remember when Jay got out and Gary got in and we were all like, let's go. Because <laughs> he had taught those MIT classes. I was like, we got one in. Who's, yeah. Who gets it, guys? I, I remember talking to one of our policy friends, and we were we were super excited about that exact same transition. Their response was, "I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing." <laughs> True. Like, um, well, jokes on us. I would say the other thing, though, just to add on to this, <clears throat> it it does feel like there's a lot of negative press and negative sentiment right now, which feels like we're hitting the crescendo, at least in the last relative period of time right now, like this week, last week. Uh, but to, to, to your point, Mike, this doesn't feel existential. It's not existential. All we have to do now is really just like extend the time horizon of our expectations of when this stuff is going to happen. And you assume over maybe a longer period of time that things like the market structure bill are going to come through, that we're going to have an understanding of, you know, a playbook for how to do this stuff, you know, with a regulated perspective in the United States. Like all this stuff is going to happen. It's just now maybe going to take a little bit longer. But the direction, and I, I do think that we're all going to be on the right side of regulatory history here. Like this stuff is going to happen. And once that happens, it's going to be game on. And there's not going to be like a chance of being at the back of the pack once it happens to be like, okay, now it's time to jump forward and do this. You kind of have to be in the seat right now to get the first shot when we're ready to go. Yeah. I have uh, – go, Miles. No, yeah, I was just going to say like, I mean, I totally agree with all of this. And I can feel like that, you know, enterprise blockchain and permissions, you know, blockchain 
uh, the, the sentiment coming right back in. And yeah, I was ha- I was having a conversation with a lot of a lot of you know traditional folks who are interested in, in, in crypto this week, and and it does you know like just become clear to me at, at different points you know in over the past few years that there's a lot of people that look at this as a way to have like an incremental you know efficiency improvement basically improve the efficiency of settlement versus the people who are on the ground building who have, you know, the ideas of enabling permissionless access to financial markets, creating new types of money. Right. Um, and these are very, very different objectives. Um, and, and I think that I'm not really sure where we land uh, between them, but I think that it kind of like becomes more like it comes to a head every couple of years uh, in the, you know, various your resolve gets tested every four years time time is a flat circle this is i (laughs) i found this in my inbox randomly uh this week but i this is the table of contents from a 2016 report about what goldman thought blockchain would look like and this was at the period of time when whenever goldman sachs was talking about like blockchain not bitcoin it was like a huge deal and my dad would like send it to me you know and be like maybe this isn't bullshit but you know it's Accelerating the sharing economy with reputation management, building a decentral distributed smart grid with blockchain, reducing transaction costs in real estate title insurance, capital markets, U.S. cash equities, repo, leveraged loan trading, AML and KYC. I mean, it's just a good reminder of like these very. I feel like something that happens time and time again during this period of time is, you know, when all these prices and all these new ideas, some of them get sort of batted down, you fall back on this, like, well, what are we really doing here? And then like this whole real world use case and putting stuff on chain sort of comes back into the vogue. And that will probably eventually work. And, you know, to be honest, maybe you guys got like a, I, it sounds like you're hearing some super interesting pitches about real world assets, but it does just remind me of the type of stuff that people used to talk about during the last bear cycle as well. I think, like, things are, I think things that are for sure, but like the good pitches are like, you can see the like, okay, and, you know, like the, the Goldman list that you just shared of like, you know, what blockchain is useful for it. I think that's actually right. But it's not just like, you know, we're going to create this permission blockchain and we're going to put these assets on there and then we're going to crank up the snarks and then it's going to be, you know, a hundred times better. It's like, no, you need to get everyone to opt in and it happens gradually. But like one person has the assets that they put on chain. You have another person who wants to buy them. Like historically, the problem with tokenized securities is like, yeah, you can tokenize a bunch of condos in Aspen, but like, does anybody actually give a shit? Like, does anybody actually want to buy those? Like, you need to kind of like get a lot of people and build, you know, it shouldn't be surprising, but the network effects like around it. And it feels like that is more so what's clearly happening now versus before. I was going to say, Mike, I think every single thing on that list will eventually happen. It's just a question of when. Right. You might be absolutely right. I think the reason one of the, um, you know, not to be snide, but I've always thought one of the problems with real world assets is the people that control the real world assets are all old guys. And like, it's just very hard to get old guys to get excited about this stuff. They don't have much, like seriously put yourself in the shoes for a second of someone who's 65 year old, they've run their entire career in TradFi. It's just a much harder sort of sell. And that's why to your point, Vance, it does take a while. And Kind of like you know what they say about happens. science. Science progresses one funeral at a time. I was, yeah, I was just about to say that. That's a great quote. Yeah, I'm with you the, on that. Smart people that think about this for enough time generally understand its value prop, and a lot of it is also just generational. Like there was a 
a great survey put out by Grayscale, you know, whatever you think of them about like the generational dynamics of who holds and likes crypto. The math is on our side over time. There's only going to be more of us in positions of power at these big banks. And, you know, it, it might take a while, but it's happening. Well, Francis Suarez is running for president. He announced today. I don't know if you guys How saw. can we help? <laughs> yeah. Like, who knows? Who knows? Stranger things have happened. Uh, but just to bookend this conversation on Uni V4, because I want to move on to Prometheum here. <laughs> That's going to be a fun conversation. But the 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 general idea is, uh, I forget who made this point, but it, this is sort of a continuation of a trend that we've actually talked about a couple of times on the show now, which is, you know, there's assuming a greater amount of complexity, especially on the supply side of these DEXs, like Uni V3 was a big move in that direction. And this seems to be even a continuation of that trend. And you see it in other DEX architecture and construction as well. Blend actually explicitly spelled out that they were making that assumption. And I guess we'll just have to see if that's the right move in the end. Um, I suppose the, the detriment is that you know, it allows for much more a much more customizable sort of flexible product that pushes out experimentation to the edges instead of in the core. But you know, the flip side is that it's not as it's not as easy for a retail user base to understand. So, yeah. I mean, go ahead. The 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 closing thought that I have on this is is frankly that um, they very clearly want to win the entire Dex market and the trading market, and and they are also not going away. Like they're continuing to innovate, continuing to build, and they ha- they're not done yet. And so I, I'm, you know, frankly, just like hats off to them to continuing to to pound work out and and get stuff done. Uh, and we'll see. To your point, Mike, it's experimental. It's we're going to see what happens and what people build with it. But at least you know people are taking shots. Agree, Miles. What do you think? Yeah, I guess the last thought I have is like I think it's a little analogous to how you know Ethereum. Um, Ethereum and, and rollups, basically. You know, before Ethereum makes any decisions about an exact design that it wants to commit to, um, you know, it lets basically a lot of teams experiment with different designs at the rollup level, um, and, and you can kind of see over time what works best. And maybe there is no one thing that works best for everybody, and so you want to have a lot of these different implementations. Um, and you know, if if they had implemented, you know. They could have basically said, here are the hooks we want that will make the best version of Uni V4, and here you go. Um, but instead, they're putting out all these tools. And I could be wrong, but I believe you can now deploy you know, new AMM pools permissionlessly with these hooks, um, which basically takes all the decision power out of governance. Um, and you know that, that is, to me, like de-risking uh, from a governance perspective. It's making... You know, rising governance, which I think is always smart, um, and it's also going to accelerate the experimentation, um, the rate of experimentation, because you're outsourcing it to to a market. So, yeah, that's 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 the one thing I would want to leave with is you know, it's very very similar to Ethereum. I agree with that. Let's move on. Talk about Prometheum a little bit. So, gotta give. I think the credit belongs here to. Investigative reporter, uh, Moonlight Extraordinaire, Matt Walsh of Castle Island here, who sort of blew the top off this story. Crushed it. Crushed it on this. Yeah, there was – I saw – he. so he tweeted a little – there was actually a Wall Street Journal op-ed that talked about Prometheum. And I saw Matt sort of retweet it and then apparently he dug in and he put together what is a really bizarre, frankly, story and, and series of facts. So 
obviously the the kind of backstory here is and oh can you guys see my screen no i'm not presenting i'll share it yep all right boom all right so i'm kind of walking along here um matt's matt's thread but the you know the backstory to this obviously is that the sec is bringing enforcement cases on uh coinbase and gemini and they're sort of giving the stiff arm to robin hood it's obviously not a great uh sort of environment and amidst this this sort of uh you know wave of enforcement actions Prometheum, which is a relatively unheard of uh, startup in crypto, gets approval for its first-of-a-kind special-purpose broker-dealer license. And this has obviously been a gigantic sticking point for Coinbase. This was the allegation against Coinbase that they were operating as an unregistered securities broker. So, you know, one of their their CEO, the CEO gets kind of dragged up in front of Congress and he testifies and Matt and and actually one of the other congressmen, Mike Floods as, as well, Sort of points out that these really sound a lot kind of like the democratic, you know, like uh, SEC sort of talking points. And uh, Matt sort of dug into the the business model of Prometheum um, and finds that actually they are going to launch a Prometheum chain. In fact, the business model doesn't make much sense unless there's a token. And as we all know, right, despite what the SEC says, a public blockchain and token is not. You can't really register that as a business. They're totally incompatible. And it actually turns out that there was a pre-sale of a token to, I'm actually going to butcher the pronunciation of this name, Wang, Wang Sheng. Uh, but there's, it's a CCP affiliate. So a CCP affiliate has basically purchased the pre-sale of this, this token. Um, it's just kind of this extremely bizarre. I mean, there, there's so much to this. Like we definitely got a link to this in the show notes or something because anybody listening who hasn't gone through this thread absolutely yeah. should yeah <clears throat> i mean it it goes I, I like it starts with the back and forth with with um congressman i believe flood um and the the tldr of that is you've got on one end all of the regulators saying come in and register these have to be traded as securities on ats's and on the flip side, there are no ATSs. Well, suddenly, after six years of Prometheum getting founded and and being worked on, not delivering any product, but you know, suddenly now launching their broker dealer license for special purpose BD gets turned on, which means that ostensibly they're able to trade in such digital asset security tokens um, that uh, regulators say are uh, only available to be traded on uh, platforms like Prometheum. Well, as it turns out. Um, there have been no digital asset security tokens designated to date. There are unregistered, according to you know recent filings, assets that are digital assets that are said to be unregistered securities. Those can't be traded on an ATS, nor can things that are not considered to be securities uh, and, and therefore commodities like Bitcoin and, and ostensibly Ethereum. So you're really at this interesting impasse where this is said to be the only place where these digital asset security tokens can trade, but there are none to trade. There, there are none that exist with any real sort of volume. Maybe there's you know some Aspen condos that are tokenized that are you know available to trade, as Vance was talking about. But there are no existing real assets or, or with real volume assets that can trade on this. So it's this absolute catch twenty two. And then you dig into the backstory of Prometheum, and and the story just goes absolute apeshit. I mean, yeah, just to just to clarify, so Robinhood tried to get this ATS as well, and they they got denied in March of of this year. They'd been after it for sixteen months, and then all of a sudden it was pulled back. And instead of Robinhood, you know, a company with I think over, you know, probably like fifty or sixty million users in the U.S., they gave it to this literal who company. Founded by three guys with the same last name that are obviously related, 
two of which went to a law school that is unaccredited that was funded by a by a broker dealer who went and raised venture money for them, which is extraordinarily unusual. And they clearly raised some, if not most, of this money from China. And also this the broker dealer, dealer yeah. yeah, also has just tons of, they have 18 regulatory actions against them from raising money for sham companies and doing all this stuff. So here, here's what I think happened. Like they obviously tried to figure out a way that they could like, distract away from the fact that we might need new regulation by saying like, look, these guys have an ATS, you know, they'll cop to it in front of Congress, even though literally nobody's ever heard of them. But they didn't do enough back channeling or at least research to understand that, you know, A, the story is like entirely implausible, like Mike Flood basically dismantled them right there. Uh, <laughs> B, their backstory is incredibly sketchy. And C, they have ties to the Chinese Communist Party. And so, like now, you have the Blockchain Association filing a Freedom of Information Act uh, against the SEC to find out what exactly, you know, if any relations they had with Prometheum or whatever it's called before. But like in my mind, this is just going to backfire incredibly hard against them, and I just think it's just fucking terrible. Like, like I just am losing more faith in the government every single day. My favorite, my favorite little kind of like cherry on top of this entire story was somebody snapped a photo of what was going on in the <laughs> chamber halls of Congress while they were being interviewed in front of regulators, in front of congressmen, congresspeople. And literally the, the chaplains were passing notes to each other as they were waiting to answer these questions. It's like, okay, you're literally just reading off of a script. And, and that's what the FOIA, to Vance's point, hopefully will disclose something where there, there is some, some sort of connection here um, because it felt too canned and too, too pre, pre-rehearsed. The charade right. is getting just patently ridiculous and is falling apart. Like, it, it, I think that's actually bullish uh, for regulation, but it's just like, like if you're going to try to pull one over on people, like at least do like, you know, an hour of legwork to like make it seem a little bit not suspicious. This was just a total clown car. Yeah. And it yeah. Seems, seems kind of similar to when he was propping up, uh, you know, SBF and, uh, and FTX for their special, you know, uh, regulatory classifications. And yeah, he just really knows how to pick them um, as it relates to, you know, finding these, finding these allied or like Trojan horse partners basically to kill crypto from the inside. Uh, and this one, yeah, definitely a lot less scary than, than something like FTX where, you know, if they hadn't been frauds, that might've actually worked out. Um, so I don't really know what to make of it. It's, 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 it may seem like only frauds are the ones that get through here. The, the exchange between the, I forget which one, Aaron or Adam Kaplan, the guy with the bad sideburns Aaron and uh, Mike flood is just absolutely hilarious. Yeah. It's like, can you trade regulated secure or you know tokens on your exchange? Yes. It's like, can you trade any of these? It's like, no. It's like, why not? It's because they would need to register as securities. Is there a path to do that? No. Unbelievable. You know, you know it's a fun little callback to 2017. One of the uh, that broker that broker dealer is actually behind the uh, Long Island Ice Tea oh, Company in 2017. <laughs> Isn't that a fun so little good. callback? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they got in trouble for it. Yeah. Yeah goes all the way to the top it is just I, if what it feels sort of to me is like they pick this one sort of company with a whole bunch of dubious ties and history and kind of this weird uh you know clown car of executives and they're trying to hold it up and say hey see we're not biased we we will let you know properly regulated you know licensed businesses operate in the u.s well, and it's like 
No. <laughs> so no. What, what, what I think ultimately the intention is with all of this is they clearly chose somebody who has no pre-existing business ties or no pre-existing users, no pre-existing assets on the platform. And that's really, I think, what their goal is. They're basically, their goal is to say, okay, great. We're going to regulate this industry. But what that means is that we're starting from zero right now. Everything that pre-existed is done. It's over. It's unregulatable. It's not going to exist henceforth. And anybody who wants to restart can get going right now under the confines of everything that we approve starting right now, which obviously is never going to work. You, you can't just kill an industry because you don't like it. And, and so I think it's going to come to a head at some point, but I, I do truly think like their intention and their way forward and their, way, their, their scapegoat here is to basically say, we're just going to restart everything right now. Hard reboot. Yeah. The, you know, I think we've talked about this on previous shows, but I'll just reiterate this and I'll, I'll put my hand up and say I'm not some sort of legal strategist or, or whatever, but it does feel like the SEC is picking a lot of fights with, they're fighting a battle on a whole bunch of different fronts right now. And I'm sure there's probably some strategy here about, you know, Gary knows his, his tenure in the SEC is not going to be indefinite. And so he probably wants to open as many actions in the case that like hopefully one of them hits, but you know, he's now picked a fight with a whole bunch of different entities that some of which, many of which, frankly, have large war chests. And he's kind of made, you know, you know, that old poli- uh, expression, politics made odd bedfellows or whatever. Well, we're all we're all kind of bedfellows now, you know. Um, so I don't know. I uh, If history suggests, no, number one, uh, I think Binance has already come out and said that they have a billion dollars set aside to fight this. But if history suggests these suits that are being raised right now are not going to get anywhere close to being resolved during the tenure of, of Gary Gensler. So yeah. it's going to happen, you know, after he's gone <clears throat> and there's not going to be any resolution. And, and these things are not going to be like a, a fold and just give up type situation. They're going to be a fight, fight tooth and nail between Coinbase and Binance. So a long arc of storyline here that's going to happen. The the path to regular regulatory clarity or regulatory friendliness, whatever you want to call it, is like there's there's multiple paths. And I actually I read this tweet from uh, I think it was Alexander Grieve or Justin Slaughter, um, one of the guys who's the uh, legal counsel at Paradigm, which is like you know if you have this bill pass, it's probably going to be a little bit more restrictive than if you had just like people win these court cases and like nothing really changed and it just kind of like continued to exist in this amorphous gray zone. We I don't, I don't personally want that. I want the regulation, but the path to regulatory clarity is threefold. Uh, you know, court cases get won. I, w- I would put those, I would put that odds at probably like 60, 40, um, you know, like Grayscale, Ripple, Coinbase. Like I think those are kind of winnable cases. Um, new administration, if you look at the betting odds on predicted, it's like 50, 50 right now. Um, and then this bill passing. So like if you have three different things that each have like, you know, a 50, 60% chance of happening. Like for me, that just suggests that like regulatory clarity is coming maybe not in the timeline that we want, actually maybe sooner than we actually might actually think, but there's a lot of different things that can play out. There's actually another one that uh, um, Vance and I have talked about, but uh, I think Paul from CLO at Coinbase uh, tweeted about, which is there's, there's next year going to be a Supreme court case, which revisits the decision that happened in 1984. Uh, I think it's of the main fisheries and Chevron. 
it's Chevron versus natural resources. Natural resources. Chevron yeah. versus natural resource uh, uh, defense, whatever. Um, basically, the premise is who gets to decide when there's ambiguity within the law, who gets to decide kind of like tie goes to the runner versus tie goes to the base. Um, and I think generally – uh, what this could mean is that instead of having what, – what the decision was in 1984 was that when there is sort of ambiguity, it goes to the regulator to decide what will happen. And what this could potentially uh, posit is that now you're going to have a decision that has to get adjudicated by a court uh, as opposed to this is something that gets decided upon by the regulators. Um, that is sort of a indirect way of getting to some resolution because then you have to start going back to the court system but it would be a major change in how we look at regulators. And and everybody knows like the Supreme Court has a lot of conservative justices on it and you know if you look at the five that are conservative they're basically all in favor of, you know, trimming this case down or or getting or overturning it completely. And so like if it got overturned it would basically say like unless it's explicitly authorized by Congress, regulators need to follow like the the exact letter of the law. There can't be like these you know, ambiguous interpretations, maybe not even rulemakings. So, I mean, that would have a lot further reaching consequences than just crypto. But like add up those four paths, multiply it by the expected value or, you know, what you think would happen to the crypto markets if if they happened. And you get like a pretty high expected value in my mind, at least. Yeah. The, w- the way that I kind of think about this as well is, you know, there's... If, if you're putting yourselves in the SECs, uh, all right, so rewind the clock to like two years ago. A lot of the argument was, hey, a lot of wealth gets created in private markets. It is BS that the everyday average Joes can't get access to this. This is a tool of the elite, yada, yada, yada. That was when people were making money and that was the perception. Now it's the opposite. Now it's sort of turned around and everyone is losing money. And it's like, hey, regulators, why didn't you protect us? And I think that's generally why regulators come in and they're, they don't try to be preventative. Um, they come in and sort of mop up the mess because only at such a time when everyone is losing money is there actually public demand to come in and do things. So that's probably why this all happens like this. The other thing, frankly, that might make the SEC and whoever is chairperson in a couple of years, it may make their life harder is that we might enter another bull market. And frankly, the the sort of public opinion and the desire to you know, restrict people from crypto, it, the, the tides might turn right at the time when, um, you know, they, you know what I mean? Uh, so that, that's also- You have a point, like the same thing happened with SPACs. Like when they were pumping, nobody cared. And right. They kind of had that first dip uh, in the summer of 2021 where they changed the accounting rules of like how you could launch a SPAC. And they did it when it was like, you know, obviously kind of coming down. But after that, you've seen no new SPACs. So right. there's precedent there. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, but SPACs haven't been regulated. The, 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 all the major SPACs launched after that that happened because everybody was in the pipeline. I think the bigger thing, I understand the bull bear market size of, of things. The thing that I think is the biggest, uh, frankly, and there is a little bit of news on this this week, uh, is SBF. And all of the intricacies and ties that were generated and and therefore all of the issues that were fostered with regulators or people in Congress uh, based off of what happened with with SBF and FTX. 
And I think that one of the best things that could happen to this industry is we get to see his day in court and get to see all the stuff play out. Eight, the eight counts that he was charged with are going to go through and, and the court date is set uh, at least supposedly for October 2nd. There was a discussion as to whether or not uh, um, the few things that were found uh, and he was charged with after the fact, once he was already back in the US, uh, whether or not that would have to go through Bahamanian Supreme Court decisions or, or court decisions. And that would have delayed potentially the start of this uh, legal proceeding by months to years. Um, I generally think that once we get to see some resolution there, things will have a, a much more copacetic perspective. Yeah, you might be right. I want to get to two more topics here, which is uh, one is Tether. Um, and then the last one is just sort of like a divergence in the NASDAQ and what's going on in crypto. So yesterday, um, actually over the course of the last three days, there's been a, a market shift in Curve's three pool. The three pool has three different assets, three stable coins, which is USDT, Tether, USDC, and DAI. And it's kind of the, the on-chain venue for liquidity of the major stable coins. And one of the... Um, it's called the FIDI indicator, which is, I think, named after one of the, the curve devs who first noticed this. But there's actually an inverse uh, relationship in between the percentage of Tether and the price of Ethereum. The idea generally being when people are withdrawing Tether from the three pool, they're going and doing risky things with it. And then when they're, the, te the percentage of Tether has gone up, it means that people are going risk off. And in the past, it, an extremely high percentage of Tether has meant um, coincided with uh, extreme stress in market conditions. So the two previous peaks in terms of percentage of Tether in the three pool have been in May of this year, uh, or last year with uh, Terra Luna, and then in November of last year with FTX. So over the course of the last three days, there's been a market shift in, I think Tether, at least at, at one point today was at almost 80% of the three pool, which historically would have signaled uh, a lot of stress and sort of indicates that someone would be selling Tether. Now, the caveats to all of this are that the three pool has much less volume than it used to. So there's a chance that, you know, it, yeah, it's just a lower volume pool and it's smaller selling to get to that extreme percentage. The signal might be a little bit diluted in that sense. Uh, both Binance and Tether did put out statements saying something like, hey, there's going to be a transition here. We're converting a bunch of uh, you know, Tron-based Tron uh, Tether into Ethereum-based or vice versa. I will say, you know, you never know how to trust those sort of corporate comms, right? Um, especially around, you know, when there could be potential crises. But it, it does look a little weird um, and it, it caused a good bit of panic. And the last thing, a little bit of context, I'll add, and then Miles will let you go here, is Adam, I think this was an Adam Cochran tweet that um, apparently Tether's financials have been leaked to Coinbase. And there is speculation that Coin, that is Coindesk. 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 Coindesk, thank you. And that's what have, could have uh, set off the selling. So, Miles, sorry, you look like you were going to say something. No, no, I was just trying to understand the, the indicator because I understand one side of it when, you know, things are, when everybody's really nervous about a big blow up, they tend to also get nervous about, you know, Tether. Um, and so I can totally see why, you know, during FTX and Luna, the pools skewed Tether. I don't know if I fully understand why people like would go, why you would need Tether in particular to go speculate. Um, but I, I think that, you know, who knows what the hell is going on here, but this is typically, you know, we're going to see this again and again when anything looks sketchy, people will get out of tether. And, you know, I think back of my head, it's, it's been a worry for years. Um, just the 
because we don't really know what's going on. Uh, same, you know, Binance can kind of create that same area as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would just, we'll see. It sounds like there's more coming out on the story that could be, you know, attributed to, to the, you know, driving at least what's, what's moving around the percentages. Um, but yeah, it is, it is interesting. Anytime anybody gets nervous, they run out of tether. The, the DPEG was uh, at its lowest level, 0.9954. Less than half of a uh, less than, less than 50 basis points. The, so it's, it's 10 bips to redeem. Um, and we know people who, who redeem like that, that is working. Uh, the other thing is, so you recently had uh, Binance. So bi- when Binance uh, does withdrawals.com and, and .us, it, you can kind of see .com sometimes refill .us's balances. But the two most popular chains to do it on that have the most USDT on it are uh, uh, ETH and, and Tron, strangely enough. What is going on on Tron? I have literally no clue, but like whatever. Um, and recently the ETH balances for USDT were running basically at zero. And so they did a chain swap. They took 750 million from Tron and they put it on ETH. And so like you do have this like endogenous large amount of supply that was created on chain that like a lot of this is going to go into the curve pool because it's the biggest on-chain venue for this to happen. So like that's the first thing. And then the second thing is like the wallets that we have tagged as Tether just like bought up all of the, you know, depegged USDT. So, you know, they're, they're buying. Um, I, I just think people are susceptible to, to getting fudded right now. Sorry, when, was... when the stablecoin FUD gets busted out, it's like, God, uh, what the hell? Like the USDC <laughs> FUD was actually turned out to be real, but for no cause of its own, it's because the bank that backed it blew, blew up. But like this one is a, uh, is classic, like, you know, let's freak everybody out a little bit more. Hey, some somebody bought some 92 cents USDC, though. Yeah. yeah. True. I mean, that was probably not worth it on a risk-adjusted basis. Just I'm with you. I'm <laughs> with you, dude. You're betting on a fucking Silvergate yeah. bank or a Silicon Valley bank bailout. Like, what do you know on chain that, like, those people don't? Doesn't feel good. No, nothing. And it's like 8%. Is your upside? I just, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, Vance. When you said they're buying, I just got like flashbacks to the Steady Lads tweet. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, let's, let's hope it's a little bit different this time. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to go there. We don't no. need to go there, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Nah, I'm sure it'll be fine. All right, last last story here, and maybe we can cue this. Uh, I think it was Travis Kling that that tweeted out this chart. Um, oh, am I still sharing my screen? Yeah, one sec. Uh, but basically, I'd, I'd love to just kind of get, um, maybe Vance and Michael could call on you here to sort of just get your thoughts on where we're at market cycle-wise here. Um, you know, it, it was kind of an interesting chart. I mean, there's a, you know, Travis's uh, sort of caption here is not the decoupling we wanted, but the decoupling we deserve. And the NASDAQ is taking off and crypto is down quite a bit. I, I will say before I want to source everyone's opinion here, it's always been a little bit of a bugaboo of mine to just take like one cherry pick one very specific period of time and then just Let's look go. at divergences in between. I just I just think that's pretty you know you could this, this has never happened before you know this is this is brand new. Also, yeah. let's just like put a you know. A backdrop here, uh, you know. Unfortunately, Travis got stuck in the FTX debacle. 
I'd say that the sentiment on crypto for him has completely soured. So he's just mm-hmm. looking for any opportunity to to bash on everything that we're talking about here. And, you know, if you were to break apart the, the components of that NASDAQ growth, I bet, you know, 80% of that is NVIDIA. And the rest of it is probably, you know, well-performing tech assets, but it's probably the top 10 at max that are driving the rest of those returns. And on the Bitcoin side, it's because we had some structural selling based off of what the SEC just said around not Bitcoin in particular, but other digital assets. Like this is just a structural issue in my mind. So uh, I was I was watching this podcast with uh, with Jeff Gunblack, who at this point, I've just started outsourcing all of my macro views to Jeff because he's the absolute goat. Like he just he's just he's the bond king. He's the bond king. He uh there's a, couple of the funny articles. There's a couple of funny articles about him where apparently he's asked people who've had lunch with him, what's it like to have lunch with a genius? Like he, <laughs> he's on one, but, he, but he's smart and he knows it. But his whole point is like the S&P 493 is negative yeah. on the year. The S&P 7 is doing exceptionally well. And the things I think about when I see like NASDAQ decoupling from crypto Usually it's like a crypto specific issue, the regulatory stuff, like you have Celsius, you have Voyager, uh, they're going to be, you know, either distributing or selling alts. Uh, you have Robinhood delisting three tokens, like there's some meat to get through, but like all of that's going to happen probably in June or July, at least those three. Then you have like the Mt. Gox Bitcoin sales, you have like this, you know, potential further action against Binance, which is going around on on, on Twitter and like this doesn't seem like out of the ordinary for me. It's not like there's something structurally wrong with crypto. There's just like a bunch of negative catalysts right now. And that that's fine. The thing it reminds me of is uh, March 2020, um, where everything fell apart. Crypto more than anything else. I think, you know, we were we were buying ETH at, I think it was like 285. No, no, no. no, no, no. When we started, when we started oh. buying it. So we, we like raised the fund. We bought all this two, two sixteen average yeah. cost basis. Yeah, like two sixteen, nice. and uh, and then it went to eighty, and we were like, oh, no, <laughs> no, not like this. <laughs> and then you know that happened, and then stocks started to rip after that. And I forget what the first ones were, but like it was, it was basically just like, it was Zoom. I think was the first one, and that was kind of what led everything else. But crypto just didn't move at all. And that was when a bunch of people were like trying to tokenize stocks because people thought that people would want to trade stocks on chain because like crypto wasn't moving anywhere. Um, And, you know, it kind of had this run where it set the stage for crypto outperformance later in the year. But but that's what happens. Like, you know, people are going to bid the 10 year down to like 371st from where Fed funds is at, you know, five and a half, whatever. Then they're going to bid tech stocks because like those have like real business models. And that's what everyone over the past 15 years has been trained to buy the dip on. Um, And then you're probably going to buy some random stuff after that. But like all of this stuff is getting expensive. I checked today. NVIDIA is trading at a 220 times price to earnings. Meta is at its all time high in terms of its price to earnings ratio and has tripled since the bottom. And so like can the stock market keep going up? Should you hope for it as a crypto investor? A hundred percent. But like... Things are getting to that point where it's like pretty expensive. Kathy Woods sold NVIDIA because she said it was in a bubble. Like you're starting to see people put markers out. Oh boy. I know. And when she does that, I don't think I've ever, like there was nothing in 2021 where she was like, this is too expensive. <laughs> like but she's putting her foot down now. 
I, I also listened to the to the um, uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth interview with uh, I think yeah it was with the Jack Farley, and she was like the stock market's about to start falling apart, like maybe, or it's just going to keep getting bid up, and you're just mad that these don't fit with like your price earnings models historically. Kind of hard to tell. It's tough to predict this. I mean, we did have an FOMC this week, and since this is a macro pod, we can just give a, a slight <laughs> overview. But Hell this yeah. was this was a this was the this was the first time that we didn't get a hike in quite a long period of time. So we got a pause on this one. Yeah, but nobody and cared about the hike. They cared about the dots. They cared Does about the dots. Nobody believe that shit anymore. Like hawkish skip or like a dovish <laughs> twenty-five basis point hike. I feel yeah. like I just don't believe anything that this man says. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's why people are concerned. Is the dot plot said there's going to be two more hikes this year, so another fifty basis points. But you know, we'll see. I I sort of think he's trying to have his lunch and have his cake and eat it too, because you know he's pausing to see if there's going to be something catastrophic that breaks in the financial system between now and then. If basically if nothing does, then they'll keep hiking. But you know, I I feel like the fact that we're getting any sort of pause right now tells you that you know. I, and by the way, even what's 25, what's 50 more basis points? Like that's the peak. And then we're rolling off after there. So we've been through the meat of the hiking cycle, I think. Yeah, a little round of applause for everyone going through the most gnarly tightening cycle, basically of all time in terms of like speed and delta from the base. But my, my personal dot plot, I either think it's done or there's one more 25 basis point hike. But like, I think inflation is going to go to zero or negative at some point in the next 18 months. And it's going to look insane if rates are still at like five and a quarter. Someone had a really good analogy. I can't remember who, but who I was watching and basically gave the description of what is happening at the Fed right now. And they're driving with their hand on the wheel and their head is turned completely 90 degrees the other way, 180 degrees the other way. And, and, you know, they're looking backwards, but I think one of the, the great points about all of the, like financialization of everything, whether or not you want to call it accurate or not, it's been directionally correct. But if you look at things like Trueflation or Manaheim or any of the shelter indices like Redfin and, and some of the private data points, anybody who's following any of that and it's forecasted and it's forward looking can tell exactly what you just said, Vance, which is it's going to go negative. And it's, I can't, I think it was uh, Bank of America or City said that this could be the largest decrease month over month, uh, two months in a row, decrease in inflation that they've ever seen. Um, because now we're talking about uh, a, a headline CPI print uh, of 3.2 next month. And from 4 4.9, 4.0, 3.2, that would be the largest decrease in two months. Um, all of the stuff is going to happen. It's just a question of when. I don't know when rates are going to drop. I, I find it hilarious as well that everybody's looking at dot plots of also people who vote on this stuff and people who don't vote on this stuff being factored into those dot plots. Like these are just perspectives of people. Um, and yeah, I think it, it's all going to, it's all going to happen very quickly. And um, next month will be a big one. The, the other thing that I would say as well is this stuff is all very complicated. The financial system is this gigantic amalgamation of a whole bunch of different economic activity in different sectors. And, you know, there haven't actually been that many periods of time that we've had inflation within the last hundred years. So anyone that points to, you know, quote unquote precedent here, you're really pointing it like two times. So it, do, it doesn't really tell you that much. And the other thing that people miss is a lot of this stuff is very relational. And what I mean by that is, you know, people are like, well, Bitcoin or crypto can't do well if interest rates are at 
the the dot com bubble happened when Fed funds was over five percent that you know people don't really remember. And the thing about inflation, if let, let's just say Vance, it's the opposite of what you just said, and there's going to be inflation for a long period of time. Bonds get smoked in inflation. That's like the number one thing that really gets hit. Um, you know, because your the fixed income that you're getting out into the future is devalued from inflation. So then money will move elsewhere. And it's just like people make relate uh, decisions based on what they're going to buy relative to other assets. So if if anyone's pointing to, oh, I think interest rates are going to be here, so crypto can't do well, I just think that's a myopic here, here, point of here's, view. Here's a great data point. This week I was reading a report from, I think it was CalPERS or CalSTRS, I can't remember which one, but you're talking, you know, 100 plus billion dollars worth of assets. And they manage a, a fully diversified portfolio, you know, fits income, probably like real assets, real estate, but also private equity, hedge funds, and, you know, of course, venture. Right now, the allocation that they have to venture is about 1.2% of their NAV, which is in the order of about 800 million to a billion per year that they're allocating to new venture funds. The goal that they have for the next two years is to ramp that from 1.2% to 6%. So think about that. You know, when you have all of these storylines of General Catalyst came out this week and they said that they're raising a $5 billion fund. Um, you've got you know multiple billion dollar funds that everybody who was talking about this over the last six months said no possible way do, do these happen. Sure, I think some of these don't happen. Insight tried to raise twenty and, and currently is at two, but and they're going to cut their their size. TCV same thing. Sizes will get cut, but the allocation is not going anywhere. And if anything, it's getting ramped up and probably just going to be extended over the next period of time. So it, when it comes to innovation financing, I don't think there's anything that's really going to change over the next let's call it three to five years. Next year, this year might be tough, but but you have to extend the timeline. As a, as a quick aside on, on the Fed, everyone should watch Jeff Gunblack's interviews on CNBC about the Fed. He has so much contempt for these people. He refused to call it, he refuses to call it an institution. Instead, he calls it like a program. Like it's like a children's play. And his whole perspective is that we should replace the Fed with the two-year treasury and just never, ever print money again. I don't think that's really going to happen. He's kind of like an anarcho-capitalist at this point, but the level of disdain that man has for the Fed is absolutely hilarious, and it comes through in all these interviews in the funniest way. Yeah. Must watch. You know, you know, I don't know how disdainful he is, but the, the other guy that I always like listening to is Stan Druckenmiller. He's just got a, you know, he's just got such a long sort of career of being, he's been wrong a couple times, but he's been right, obviously, quite a lot and pays a lot of attention to this. One point that he brought up that resonated, and you actually see it all the time in crypto, you know, because there's a lot of excess during bull markets, and then you know you, you see who's swimming naked. But generally, it's like, you know, the, to paraphrase his point was, you know, when interest rates are low for even a short period of time, people do really dumb things. But when they're really low for eleven years, people do really dumb things. And it kind of made me think, like, what are the what are the industries that have just been money printers for a really long time that there are probably just some horrendous practices going on under the hood. And one industry, especially in finance, that's never really had a reckoning is private equity. And those guys have those guys have just been a money printer for such a long time that there are these weird, I don't know if anyone listens to Bethany McLean. She's like dug into the industry a little bit. There are some weird sets of incentives that happen in private equity like that. I have no evidence for this and I'm purely speculating, but I mean, that, well, that's been a money You ever seen the movie seven with, uh, with Brad Pitt? Yeah, yeah I have. <laughs> the box. I don't, I don't think anybody wants to know what is in the mystery private equity box. Like it, it may be just, and I, I think that is one 
I think the other one is just like these mega growth funds in tech. Like, I think when you peel back the curtain on that, there's going to be multi-billion dollar holes in all of these mega funds. And like, if I had an option between do I LP into a crypto mega fund, like the Andreessen Horowitz, you know, four and a half, five billion one, or do I give it to General Catalyst? Man, I'm choosing crypto 100, 100% of the time. Like, I think there is some serious damage that has been done to those funds and they have not been marked properly. And it's just because it's just corporate equity, you know? And if you keep these zombie companies live long it's, enough, you can get it all comes down to the private marks. It all comes down to the private marks and nobody is, nobody's calling anybody out on the private marks. And the, the crazy part is to go back to private equity. We talked about commercial real estate, obviously that, you know, as interest rates go up, we can see that that will get squeezed. It already is getting squeezed. We're seeing that reflected in these bank holdings. <clears throat> but the thing that people aren't necessarily talking about is the leverage that gets put onto every single portfolio company of every single private equity firm. And commercial, in many cases, that's a fixed term. Or it has you know all these covenants that enable you to have like uh, the ability to, to like change the terms and re refinance in ways that are limited it, it like they're so inflation rate heavy dominated that they actually have you know a lot of controls over how they operate private equity firms have none all of leverage finance is like as rates go up it's libor plus like 300 bips yeah. and the second that rates go up it means that all the companies that they have leveraged are unable to make their debt service payments and they're having to take on additional capital and put that onto the balance sheet of these portfolio companies just so that they can be able to make payments for debt service to out, outlast this higher for longer or, or whatever we end up seeing with interest rates. Like I, I think the decimation of private equity is is going to start. Well, you know, I've, I've actually got a couple of buddies in private equity. I've asked people this question like, hey, is the reason private equity's done so well is because – you know, the interest rates have been going down. So shouldn't it How reverse? <laughs> How does this can, connect the dots for me? And I've asked this to like, you know, Miles, a bunch of our friends are private equity. And everyone's like, no, it doesn't really matter, actually. It's like, how? How, how does it not matter? You know, this because the management fees are flowing. I will. Well, it's, a, I, yeah, it's a recurring uh, revenue business. It is the best know. recurring revenue business on the face of the earth. It's, it's contractually obligated for 10 years. So long as you raise a new fund. You know what? I'm also sort of biased against private equity. I had a buddy who sent me a meme that cracked me up the other day. It was like, you ever have something that you used to love but now is shit? You have private equity to thank for that. And I do have this, you know what I mean? Toys Especially these Miles and I went to school in Atlanta and you know, there's a lot of these places down there. There's like you go into a restaurant and it like kind of looks nice before you actually look at everything and everything's like cheap and way marked up and you pay like $45 for a Branzino with like a lot of grease and you're like, oh, mm. why? You just feel like you're being extracted. You know what I'm talking about? There are lots of like restaurants and yeah. places like yeah. that. Anything Those are all like, piggybacked. Anything that's too good to be true is you can thank the VCs for that. And then anything that's just like gilded and absolutely shitty is that's the company to at least the at least the VC people like have a claim towards trying to finance the future. Private yeah. equity people are just trying to oh, I agree. everything that already exists. For, yeah, they're they're asset harvesters, you know, and they're asset harvesters. So wait, wait, wait. Let me let me tell this story real quick. So my my friend is an LP in a big uh, private equity fund, and uh, so there there's like there's like six funds uh, for this PE fund, and fund five had a big liquidity event. My friend was like, "Awesome, that's great. Who bought it?" They were like, "Fund six bought it." 
<laughs> it's like what you said who makes money on that transaction is it like fun five it just that's that's like alarming to me when the pe funds start selling shit to each other but also like to those to themselves well to themselves is a different story but i've never heard of that way, before the I've, I've that, that, that. that maybe that may be wrought with issues but the way that most pe transactions happen is it is not a like, oh, we're going to sell this to the public and go IPO. It is a sponsor to sponsor transaction, which means like it's a smaller private equity firm selling to a larger one. It's like the small fish, big fish, bigger fish, biggest fish. It's like that's exactly the human, what this human is. centipede of, of private equity. <laughs> well, here's a little, here's a little, uh, you know, hypothetical transaction that could occur, right? You know, you like you're running a private equity fund. A buddy of yours is running a private equity fund too. You each have a company, right? You say, hey, like, I think you should invest in this company in my portfolio company. Maybe you put $15 million in, mark it up a little bit. Looks good for my books. You also got some companies. I got actually $15 million here too. You know what? I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna invest it in one of your portfolio companies, whatever valuation you think seems reasonable. Suddenly, both of those companies are marked up and everyone has the same amount of money. My, you know, my, my, you're talking, you're talking about a million dollars back and forth for the last 20 years. Mike, <laughs> Mike, you're not actually talking about private equity in that instance. You're talking about traditional venture capital. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. All right, whatever. Fine but line, here's the but... best part. But here's the, here's the best part. You mark up each company. We all look like we have grid books. And then we go off and raise our next fund and live off the management fees for the next 10 years. Win, win, like baby. That, it, it, is, it is insane what, what some of the – like, yeah yeah it's insane what some of these funds have gotten away with over the last 10 years yeah there was some quote about um i forget who said this at one point but it was one of like the big hedge fund guys that shorted uh i think it was like Citibank or something it was one of the big banks in 2008 and he's like looking at the books and like can't figure it out and the conclusion that he came to is ultimately that it would just be too inconvenient to too many people for something to fail and that that i feel like sometimes things can just happen like that also you got to take into account the market structure when do we stop hearing about people that made money during 2008 and have not done anything since that was 20 years ago i was i was eight (laughs) (laughs) yeah you were not eight in 2008. I was like backing into that. I just also did that math. I was like, wait a second. Is that, is you were, that you were, you were like 17. Yeah, no, I was in high school, but like, dude, I feel like there was, there was some movie that just came out about the great financial crisis. Who cares? What's honestly, what's, what's the, it's going to uh, start getting filmed on history channel henceforth. Oh Yeah. With the the Robert McNamara documentaries, with just the slow zoom ins on the pictures, right after it'll be documentaries about World War II. <laughs> Tell me about how they invaded France through the Ardennes forest. Okay, great. Let's transition to the GFC. It's like, dude, I don't care about either of those. Yeah, Margin Call is a pretty epic movie, though. Oh, I've, 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 I've like that's aged like very well for me, and I just love the Jeremy Irons or whatever his name is character. You know, um, I, I will say yep. I think that is the best finance movie that exists. Yeah, yeah, I think better it's than the Big Short. Big Short it's is too long. One. Also, I don't like Brad Pitt. Yeah, personal. Yeah, they're going to do an SBF movie, so eventually we'll get to you know the next God. Uh, yeah, 2020 cycle. So. Yeah, there's there's like no complexity there. It's just like he liquidated himself and stole money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who would play? I guess we SPF? can't. 
I was going to say, I guess we can't have Army Hammer play the Twins anymore. Ooh, no. <laughs> Do you guys ever watch American Greed? That show? It's like on. Yeah. It's on yeah. late night on CNBC. It's like basically like local scams and grifts. Like I feel like that's yeah. where FBF belongs, yeah. not in like a a real movie. <laughs> I like that show a lot. Actually, I I didn't realize they were still doing it, but yeah, it's a good one. Do they have? I feel so, like they've got a. Oh God, Michael. So uh, SBF is supposed to go on trial October second, give or take. Michael Lewis's book is supposed to come out three days later. Boy, <laughs> wow, it's pretty perfect timing. We all have that to look forward to for Thanksgiving. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All, All right, right, fellas. That seems like a good place to end it. Later. Fun one, guys. Peace. Right. Cheers. Cheers.